Well, good morning to each one. I want to greet you in our Savior's precious name. We will again be looking at Matthew 5. And I'm pretty sure we're going to get through the rest of this chapter now today. I do feel like I should confess to you that the last time I shared, I felt like I got really caught up in my notes and kind of confused at where I was at and so on. So I apologize. I will strive to continue to, to do better. And you can continue to, to pray for me in, in this. So one verse that I skipped over, um, we read it, but I didn't, we didn't look at it very much, is a verse that I feel is, is kind of a key that we need to look at this morning, um, or that we should look at, and it kind of helps put the rest of the chapter in perspective. So in Matthew 5, looking at verse 20, Jesus speaks about righteousness. And um, I'll just go ahead and read it. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God or of heaven. So the title this morning is The Importance of Righteousness. And as I think about the setting here, Jesus' teaching, and him telling, stating this fact, what were the people thinking? Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You know, to some of them, quite possibly, the, the, the Pharisees seemed to be so righteous. They, they had all these things that they tried to do to appear righteous, to appear like they are they're living for God. But Jesus clearly says that their righteousness, our righteousness, needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then he goes on teaching, and he doesn't really expound on that. And so I think it's good for us to take a little time and, and look at, at what Jesus is maybe meaning here. My mind goes to a familiar account in Luke 18. And so if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. But it's of two men that went to the temple to pray. And Jesus tells this parable, and, and it is very clear to us, his thoughts on these men and the way they were acting, the way they were praying. And it gives us an insight into what Jesus was talking about, our righteousness needing to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. I want to read... Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you, or thank thee, that I am not as the other men are, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven and smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So I find it interesting here as Jesus starts to share this parable, he describes, or it's described here, who he's sharing this to. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The righteousness wasn't coming from trusting in God. They were trusting in the things that they were doing, in their own works. And Jesus knew that, and so he shares this parable with them. There are two men that go to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. In the NIV it says, um, oh, sorry, that was about the previous verse, but a Pharisee was one who, sorry, didn't have it highlighted, one of a sect among the Jews whose religion consisted in a strict observance of rites and ceremonies and of the traditions of the elders and who pretended holiness led them to separate themselves as a sect, considering themselves as more righteous than other Jews. So this is what the Pharisees thought of themselves, that they were a special sect of the Jews that were more righteous than the other Jews. And yet Jesus said, your righteousness needs to be greater than that. I believe these Pharisees considered themselves to be so righteous because of their strictness in, in observing these different ceremonies, these traditions, these um, just the strictness that they, they had. But notice how this man begins his prayer. I thank thee that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even as this publican. Who were the publicans? Publicans were also known as tax collectors, people that were very despised. The Jews didn't, the other Jews didn't like the publicans because of the work that they did in gathering the taxes to give to the Romans. And I believe we understand that a lot of them, some of them were known to gather extra to keep for themselves instead of only what was required. And so they weren't well liked. And so this Pharisee says, I'm thankful that I'm not even as him, considering himself to be greater, to be more righteous. And then he goes on down his list of things that he does. Notice what he says. I fast twice in the week. Isn't that a good thing? Just this past week, I was at a school, at a meeting there at school for the parents, and, and the speaker there was encouraging us to fast more, to fast for our children. And he had a lot of good thoughts on that and challenging thoughts. And it is good to fast. Was, was it wrong that this Pharisee was fasting? Of course not. It was good that he fasted. Jesus taught that. And in fact, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks more about fasting. But this Pharisee was pretty proud of the fact, and he wasn't, didn't mind letting other people know. 
that he fasted. In fact, he does it twice a week. And then he gives tithes of all that he has, of all that he possesses. You know, as we read this prayer, we say it kind of looks like he's trying to lift himself up by his own bootstraps, right? All the things that he can do. All the things that he did, he's trying to show God like God didn't really know this. Notice how the other man prayed. Remember, this is a publican, one that is was looked down on. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We see a man that was humble, a man that realized that he had a need, had a great need. And he said, Lord, please, please be merciful to me because I'm a sinner. I need you. I need to surrender. I want to surrender my life to you. Then Jesus gives a conclusion to this. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went down to his house forgiven. He had a right standing with God. He was considered righteous because of his prayer, because of his demeanor, the way he came before God in a humble state, confessing his need, confessing his desire to want God, to surrender to God. We see a very stark contrast here. Jesus did well in pointing this out between these two men. The Pharisee was trying to be righteous in his own strength, doing many good things, quick to point out just how righteous he was compared to others. But yet, Jesus made a distinction between the two men. The man that was humble and acknowledged his need of a Savior was the one, Jesus said, who was made righteous. Not because of all the things that he had done in his past, but because this man realized that he needed a Savior. And I had to think, Jesus doesn't record what what happened the next day or the following weeks. But this publican, I wonder what all changed in his life. You know, quite possibly he realized that I should also fast. And I should also tithe. And possibly he began to do that. But yet it was out of a heart of love for God. Because God now was ruling in his life. And he wanted to, to serve him. And honor him in these, these things. <clears throat> Jesus also made some other comparisons of the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, just to give us a little more perspective. In verses 23 through 28, Matthew 23, 23 through 28, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted 
the weightier matters of the law. So right there, Jesus is, is agreeing that they're tithing on all these things, even to the little um, of mint and, and, and so on. So they were very detailed in tithing on these things. But yet he says, you omitted, you forgot about, you don't care about the weightier matters of judgment, mercy, and faith. They're putting a lot of trust and faith in, in their own works rather than in God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the others undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like the white sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones and of all the uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So I believe that gives us a very clear picture of what Jesus saw when he looked at the Pharisees. They tried to appear so good, just like the last verse says, you appear, outwardly you appear righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy. And, and he has this whole different list of things that he compares them to. the A cup or a platter that is clean on the outside, but still so filthy on the inside. White and sepulchers, which appear beautiful on the outside, or as beautiful as they can, but yet inside are full of dead man's bones, full of uncleanness. These men, no doubt, were so much more concerned about how they appeared to others than how they actually appeared to God. So Jesus clearly points out that our righteousness needs to exceed this. And how can it do that? But that we do as that publican did, Cry out to God, asking for forgiveness, fully surrendering to him. And it goes so well with the Sunday school lesson in, in loving the Lord with all our heart. Surrendering to him. And then his spirit fills us and directs us and helps us to live right. To live the way he wants us to. And to look at one more reference in John 15. How can we be righteous? How can we live right? John 15, verses 1 through 6. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. 
He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burnt. So we need that true connection to the vine for us to be righteous so that we can bear fruit. How can we bear fruit unless we are connected to Christ? But even so, what does Jesus say there in in verse 2? That the husbandman will do, what will God do? And every branch that beareth fruit, saying that he is bearing fruit, He purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. So we may be in the vine, and yet God will continue to work in our life and purge us so that we can bear more fruit. These times of purging might not always be so comfortable or really pleasant. But do we allow them to grow us and to help us to be more like Jesus? so we can bear more fruit, so we can be more productive in doing what he calls us to do. Jesus also explains how useless we become if we are not connected to the vine. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. Useless. Back to Matthew 5 again. comes as no surprise, but it is a blessing to think about how, how well Jesus put this message together to the people, this sermon. You know, in explaining it and making them think that their righteousness needs to be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he goes on explaining these next six points. You know, most of them were familiar, I'm sure, with these different things. And not killing, committing adultery, and so on down the list. But Jesus raises it to a next level. Not only were just their outward actions, like the Pharisees were so used to doing, just the outward signs supposed to be there and that they not kill, they not commit the act of adultery. But it was also supposed to be something deeper than that. It was supposed to be coming out of the heart, and he explains that in more detail. But as I said, I kind of got disorganized last time. So we already did look at verses 21 through 26, and speaking about not killing or not even, even having angry thoughts toward others keeping a good mind, not speaking evil of others. So we're ready to look at the next paragraph, verses 27 to 30. Read that at this time. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. 
And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be, should be cast into hell. <clears throat> so again, they are familiar with the first part. You have heard that it was said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, that even looking lustfully at a woman is the same as the act. Jesus is raising the bar and telling them it's very important that we guard our minds, our hearts, our eyes. How do we know that Jesus considered this very important? Well, if we look at those following verses, 29 and 30, he goes into detail to say how we, what we should do if our eye or our hand is causing us to stumble. He says, just pluck your eye out, because it's better that you would lose that part than that your whole body be cast into hell. And so we see here how important this is to Jesus, to God. But I believe before we go and, and go to that extreme, that it's very important that we remove the temptations that are causing these problems. That we get aggressive with this whether it is a book that we are reading or looking at or a computer that is tempting us, whether it is another type of device or a phone or whatever it may be, are we being active and doing away with these things or in guarding ourselves from these things that are causing temptations or could be causing temptations in our life? We need to be active. Maybe it's not something that we are able to remove, such as certain parts of, of the city or town that we, we go to, or billboards that we see, but we can guard our eyes, and God expects us to guard our eyes, guard our thoughts, so that we don't lust after those things that are wrong. Remember, when God changes us, our desires also change. There's a verse in Romans 6, 6. <clears throat> Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So the old man is crucified. Yes, we may be tempted at times still. But how are we going to respond to that temptation? Are we going to think that we just can't overcome it? We're familiar with the verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God, who is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with that temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Do we put 
trust and confidence in that promise that God gives us. There is no temptation that we face that we cannot overcome with God's help. It says, but God will with the temptation also make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. So yes, we live in a world that is full of sin, full of temptation. But the Holy Spirit is here to help us every day. But we need to ask for that help. We need to look for a way of escape. We need to actively do our part. I believe that is just such a beautiful promise that that God gives us there. That he will make a way of escape. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Jesus is teaching on the, the sacredness of marriage and his plan for that. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees came to Jesus and were tempting him with a question about divorce and whether it is okay. Verse uh, Matthew 19, 3, the Pharisees came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? You know, I find it interesting that they come, they came to Jesus trying to get him to answer or to respond in a wrong way so they could, they could trap him. It says they came to him, tempting him with this question. And he corresponds with them in the next several verses. And then in verse 8 of Matthew 19, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so he clearly teaches us there that in God's perfect plan, it wasn't to be that way. Marriage was supposed to be for life. And I believe that is still what he expects today. We should always look for reasons to restore the marriage relationship rather than for excuses to leave it. Do we truly recognize the power and love that is given us through the Holy Spirit that we talked about this morning? That can help us through difficult things that we may face? God gives us the strength to continue on even if we face something difficult that we may need to work through. Remember what Jesus says, from the beginning is how he had planned man and woman, marriage for life. Paraphrasing it. Verses 33 to 37. Again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, or to swear falsely, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, 
because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You know, we have been raised, I believe, quite a bit differently. We've been taught since we were young, or most of us have, to tell the truth all the time, to always tell the truth. And when we told lies, there were consequences for that. I still remember some of them. But we've been taught to be truthful. And when we say yes or say no, that that's what we mean. But here it seems like the Pharisees were doing something quite a bit different. In my studies, I, I found this. It says, the morality of the Jews on this point was truly execrable. They were very bad. They maintained that a man might swear with his lips and annul or void it in the same moment in his heart. So they were maybe saying one thing, but yet in their heart they, they could determine whether that was actually the truth or not, and they justified themselves in that. What a bad example it would have been in the community. But it was fairly common, it seems. In fact, in Matthew 23, um, there's a number of verses there that Jesus is sharing with them, with the Jews, talking about this. And I'll read verse 16. It says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. So depending what they were swearing by as to whether they actually had to keep or do what they said or not. And it, Jesus went on down a list there, kind of very similar to that. And he points out here in, in Matthew 5 that that was wrong, that we need to be truthful. Do not swear. Just be truthful. Jesus brings us back to the way that it should be today, what he expects of us today. And he says there in the last verse in 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no from the New King James Version. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Are we known to be people of our word? Are we known to be truthful people? Or are we known to be kind of a shady person that people don't really know whether to trust or not? It don't take people real long to figure that out, I don't believe. They know whether they can trust you, whether they can trust me. Are we trustworthy? <clears throat> Verses 38 to 42. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man shall sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So this concept here that he begins with, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is something they were somewhat familiar with. 
And it's something that comes natural to man. We don't have to teach anyone to live like this. We don't have to teach our children how to do this. They're quite good at returning whatever happens to them to the person that did it. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know, and at times when we are wrong, we may be tempted to respond the same way. To treat others the way they have treated us. But is that God's way? Is that what God expects of us? Is that what he hopes? Is that living in righteousness? Again, Jesus raised the bar. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Our desire should not be to keep score, but to love and to forgive. To show compassion to those that mistreat us. We clearly see Jesus demonstrating this when he stood before the council. What all did they do to Jesus and he left them do it? They spit in his face. Have you ever had that happen? Probably not, unless it was an accident, and that's disgusting enough, right? You don't like that. They slapped him on the face. They mockingly poked a crown of thorns into his head and pretended to to worship him, to to bow before him. And then they took that reed that they had put in his hand and, and hit him across the head, and I assume that was across these, this crown of thorns, hurting him more. And how did Christ respond to all of this, all this abuse and unkindness? Luke 23, 34, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So he was just ready to forgive, even though they mistreated him so badly. Even though he technically could have done something back. But no, he didn't do that. He showed love. He showed forgiveness instead. thought about reading a few verses in Matthew 10, but... We'll just keep on going. But in Matthew 10, verses 16 to 22, Jesus was telling his disciples different things that they were going to face as they went out into the world to work. These difficult things. And he told them how they should respond. And verse 19 in there for sure tells us, I want, I'll just look at that verse real quick. 10 verse 19. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for shall for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. How were they how was that going to happen? The Holy Spirit was going to help them and direct them through those difficult times when they were being persecuted or taken up before the council. <clears throat> and we had talked about last time a little bit about verse 42. Let's skip down to verses 43 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that they may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? 
And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which in heaven, or which is in heaven, is perfect. So he continues on here a little bit with the, the same theme, making sure that we love our enemies. Not just loving neighbors, not just loving the people that are kind to us, but loving those that don't really care for us. We just looked at how Jesus did that in thinking about the way he responded to the different ones that were hurting him. And I've shared this before, but it always blesses me as I think about Stephen and how he responded as he was being hurt. As he was being stoned, what a pleasant, uh, a very unpleasant experience. But in Acts 7, 60, and he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So he really cared about those that were hurting him, even though they were killing him. Yet he asked God not to hold this sin this awful thing that they were doing at their charge. There we see a love for the enemy. We're about out of time. I'd like to conclude in reading one account here, and there's so many accounts in the Martyr's Mirror that we could look at in thinking about loving our enemy. And this one isn't necessarily just... um, so specific about loving the enemy, but just remaining faithful to God and and the the strength that this person received to remain faithful to the end. You might be familiar with the account, and I probably won't pronounce his name correctly, but Garrett Hasput, he was burnt in 1556. In that summer, there was in the city of Nimeguin, a faithful brother named Garrett, a tailor by trade. Having fled from the city on account of severe persecution, he secretly returned. Since his wife and children were still living there, so he, he, he escaped but comes back. And when he returned, he was seen by the bailiff's guard, who reported it to their master. The bailiff, a very bloodthirsty man, immediately went after him and took with him, took him with him. Thus his Thus, this friend of Christ had to separate from his wife and children and go into prison, tribulation and misery for the name of Jesus. When very severely examined by the lords of this world, he freely confessed his faith and was not ashamed of the truth. He was therefore sentenced to death by them, that is, to be burnt at the stake, which sentence he received very bravely. This having taken place, His wife came to him in the city hall to speak with him once more and to take leave and bid her dear husband farewell. She had in her arm an infant, which she could scarcely hold because of her great grief. When wine was poured out to him, as is customary to those sentenced to death, he said to his wife, I have no desire for this wine, but I hope to drink the new wine, which will be given to me above in the kingdom of my father." Thus the two separated with great grief and bade each other adieu in the world. 
For the woman could hardly stand on her feet any longer, but seemed to fall into a swoon through grief. When he was led to death, and having been brought from the wagon upon the scaffold, he lifted up his voice and sang the hymn, Father in heaven, I call, O strengthen now my faith. Thereupon he fell upon his knees and fervently prayed to God. Having been placed at the stake, he kicked his slippers from his feet, saying, It were a pity to burn them, for they can be of service still to some poor person. So again, we see him thinking of others as he is there at the stake. The rope with which he was to be strangled became a little loose, having not been twisted well by the executioner. He again lifted up his voice and sang the end. Sang the end of said hymn. Brethren, sisters, all goodbye. We now must separate till we meet beyond the sky with Christ our only head. For this yourselves prepare and I will wait for you there. The executioner again twisted the rope. This witness of Jesus fell asleep in the Lord and was burnt voluntarily surrendering for the truth. His perishable body which he had received from God and thus fought the fight, finished his course and kept the faith, and there is now laid up for him the crown of eternal life or eternal glory. So just one short account of someone who was willing to do what God asked him to do, to be faithful to the end. Not to show revenge, not to show hatred towards those that his executioners, but just to be resigned to God's will. And may we do that as we think about Jesus' teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. May we take it to heart and show the love of Jesus to those we meet.